digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My next guest on Digging in the Dirt is Aubrey Courageon. She is an ecologist from Central Connecticut and the founder of Ungardening Native Plants, a small-scale nursery and yard consultation service working to make the tools and ideas of ecological restoration accessible to all. She has a bachelor's degree in systems ecology from Cornell University and worked in the public, private, and academic sectors doing ecological research and environmental restoration before founding her company, Ungardening It. So welcome, Arbery. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Very interested in this sort of wilding of nature. Uh, so uh, tell me, let's explain what ungardening is. Yeah, so a lot of people kind of um, are starting to understand how our native plants really support our native pollinators, especially with the, the monarchs and the milkweed and that interaction. But um, it really is so much more than that. What our native pollinators and other beneficial critters and wildlife really need is a, is a functioning system. So even if you were to take your traditional yard and replace every single plant whole cloth with native plants, it still would not be what those wild critters need because they need more than just food. They need places to live. They need um, structure. So a lot of the ways that we have been maintaining our yards for generations um, kind of work against this and work against nature. And we can instead kind of lean into um, what nature wants to happen and have something that is both aesthetically beautiful and um, functionally connected to the world around it. Give us in a nutshell what ungardening is. I mean, is you're leaving your garden alone or actually actively changing it to make it into something else? Yeah, so ungardening kind of like uh, starts at a different place for everyone, but the basic concepts are removing any, um, certainly any invasive plants, but then any um, non-native plants that are kind of just non-functional in the landscape, and then replacing those non-natives with invasive species, and then um, stopping using any pesticides or fertilizers, because our native plants actually really don't need them. They are adapted to um, our natural soils, um, so fertilizer is an unnecessary expense in a natural garden. So um, it's kind of managing your garden um, in a naturalistic way. So instead of um, doing the regular maintenance that it tells that we're told to do at the box stores, um, looking to nature for that inspiration and um, doing things like leaving your leaves on the ground, um, not mulching, but allowing for areas of bare soil where our, many of our solitary bees uh, nest directly in the ground. So leaving those access to other habitat instead of just a perfectly manicured yard. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think that would be probably the hardest thing to change people's perceptions of what a beautiful garden is. So I, I think most most gardeners out there in suburbia and elsewhere that would like orderly, clean lines, easy <laughs> maintenance. seems to me that an ungarden is the antithesis to that. What, what would you say about that? 
Um, well, I think kind of coming at that from two different angles, you can absolutely still have ungardened spaces in your yard, but maintain crisp lines. So I love using fences or stone walls to, to um, do that. And you can still have a lawn that is a functional ecosystem that just isn't a turf grass monoculture. So if you allow those clovers and maybe some other native plants like dwarf St. John's wort or uh, self-heal to grow into the lawn, then it can still maintain a similar appearance, but it'll actually be a, a living ecosystem. And then many of our, our native plants, and especially many of our shrubs, actually are quite common in the horticultural industry already. So our dogwoods and our cedars and things. So a lot of these plants, just because something is native, doesn't mean that it's going to have a weedy appearance. People love the, the aesthetics of the woods and the parks around them. And I think that look, turning to those as places for inspiration rather than um, home and garden magazines and recognizing that these are things that we do find beautiful just in other contexts. What do you do when you, let's say you get a client or you are talking to somebody and trying to recommend things, but where, where do they start? Let's say they have some invasive species, you know, they have euonymus hedges and they have, you know, a lot of different perennials and, uh, and also things they buy every year and sow into their garden, but they're not indigenous to the uh, Connecticut area. What kind of things would you recommend to them? Absolutely. The first place to start is definitely um, figuring out what plants, if any, you have that are invasive. And a lot of this, it's not our fault. For, for decades and decades, these plants were sold, um, sometimes just as beautiful things and sometimes explicitly as bird food. So um, multiflora rose and autumn olive and Russian olive occupy large sections of this country because they were planted um, in the middle of the last century for bird food and bird habitat um, in, a, in a kind of misguided effort of conservation. Um, so starting and removing those invasive plants will allow plants that, um, native plants that exist in the seed bank to show up. So those plants might already be in the soil of your yard and are just shaded out by the more dense um, invasive species, or they might be able to then come in on the wind. So starting by removing what's actually invasive. Um, and then one thing that my, from my client's perspective, what seems to be the thing that people are most interested in is removing part of their lawn and turning that into a meadow. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back to what you said about autumn olive, because mm -hmm. years ago, I, I'm, I, we have a little tiny cabin upstate that we planted some stuff, you know, and we got them from New York State. And one of the things they offered was autumn olive. Now we're talking 15 years ago. You cannot buy it from New York State anymore. But what we have there has propagated through bird poop and all that stuff. They're spreading the seeds. So mm -hmm. we have some autumn olive, you know, everywhere you look, you can see some autumn olive. Why is autumn olive such, like, say, for instance, a bad uh, invasive species? Yeah, so autumn olive has a couple things that make it particularly aggressive. The seeds are absolutely delicious. Um, even for humans, they are um, they are edible. They, the plants can be a little um, dangerous. They can't have spines, so you do want to be careful and make sure, of course, that you know what you're identifying before you pick anything for food. But um, the fruits make delicious jams and even um, wines. Um, so the birds, of course, also love them. They're there are absolutely copious amounts of fruit on any tree. Mm -hmm, and um, I do believe that they have an impact on the soil chemistry. Um, and people who tend to care about removing invasive plants tend to also be people who don't want to dump chemicals into their yards. And unfortunately, autumn olive really loves it when you cut it. So it actually responds quite positively to being um, brush hogged or clear cut. Um, so unless you then are following that up with a herbicide application or 
intensively repeated cutting, you're actually going to be causing more of a problem um, than you started off with. It's hard to get rid of. Yeah. Well, I noticed that the deer like to fight it. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, young males. I mean, I go up there and I'll see a bush completely destroyed by a deer going at it with it, you know, because it must be the, the spines you were talking about that it likes, you know, with its its horns to fight the bush. So I've gotten rid of a few just by the deer taking care of that. Oh, that's interesting. Even, even though they don't eat them. Yeah. Yeah, there is a tool um, called... There are a couple of different names, but I think they're often referred to as weed wrenches that are large um, and use leverage to rip the roots out of shrubbery like that. Mm -hmm. Well, this one now is like we've noticed it forming along the edge of the property because the by just by itself, we didn't plant them there. The seeds yeah. have grown and now they're they're popping up all over the place. You're thinking it's a better idea to get rid of something like that. Absolutely, because they will just continue to spread and um, in areas. Um, so <laughs> you can just see the entire understory of forests will be um, a, a monoculture of a, of a certain invasive plant. Wow. Autumn olive tends to actually take over meadows a bit more, but then things like burning bush will just overwhelm a, a forest. Okay, I see. So how many invasive species are there? I mean, is it unlimited? Um, so... <laughs> Humans are funny and we give words very specific meanings. So um, invasive, legally, I believe there are about a hundred species in Connecticut that are designated invasive. And what that means is that it is illegal for any commercial entity to sell those plants. Um, there are about 2000 non-native species in Connecticut. So depending kind of on what your definition of invasive is, there's somewhere we, over a hundred, but under, under 300 probably. And what about now species that are good for our environment in Connecticut? How many of those are there? And and then where do we find a list of what we should go out and get and put in place of, say, autumn olive? Yeah, so that's a that's a huge question. Um, there are similar to the 2000 introduced species in Connecticut, there are about 2000 native species. Mm -hmm. um, the Connecticut Botanical Society maintains a really good list. Um, but of course, most of these plants are not available um, in, in the nursery industry. And if, if they are, many of the ones that are available are native ours, which are um, cultivated varieties of native plants. So that's either something that is selectively bred or could be um, a clone from a cutting, um, which is the case with most woody things. What I actually encourage people to do instead of going and trying to find many of these plants in the nursery is to kind of try to take a slower approach and identify who is in your yard, who's popping up. Once you've, once you've eliminated all of the invasives and um, other non-natives, whatever left, how, however weedy and strange it looks, must be a native. So if we kind of take that perspective and don't go looking for plants as much as we can let them come to us. Really? That will happen? Absolutely. I have been working on my parents' property for years and years and years. And this year I found a Canada wood lily or Canada lily um, in our back woods. And that's not something I planted. The um, nearest ones I know of are about a quarter mile away. And um, it showed up there. I was able to protect it with fencing and keep it safe from the deer. But that plant came in on its own. 
Hmm. And so how do we identify what, I mean, I don't think most of us would be able to identify native species. I mean, you're pretty much an expert on that. How, what do you recommend to people to try to figure out what's native and what's not? And, and how do you uh, select, like say, what to, to encourage to come? You say it comes to you, but I would imagine most people are kind of um, impatient and would like to plant some stuff to get going on this, especially if they decide they want to ungarden. Absolutely. Well, it kind of depends where you're starting with. For many people, they will be kept plenty busy with removing of the invasive species, um, and that should keep them occupied long enough to let some of these native plants come in. But if you're um, looking to embark on learning how to identify um, plants, it really is like learning a new language. So I recommend starting with with those invasive plants, plants you already have a reason to be identifying. And instead of just learning their names and who they are, learn the features that you actually use to recognize them and especially the families. I know scientific names can be like a little overwhelming, but knowing the families that plants are in um, is really helpful. And you can use those invasive plants and then maybe your vegetable garden plants that you're really familiar with and say your tomatoes, your potatoes, your peppers, these are all plants in the nightshade family. So you can look at them and compare them. And then when you're out in the woods or in a meadow and you find this plant with little tomato-like berries and eggplant-like leaves, instead of just saying, oh, what's this strange plant? You look at it and you like, hmm, I think that's in the nightshade family. And then you can go from there and you already have a bit of an idea um, for it to go. Formerly the New England Wild Society, now the Native Plant Trust has a great uh, website with some botanical keys. Uh, go Botany is the name of the website. And there's a whole .org. bunch of different keys and stuff. Uh, I believe, I think it's go-botany.org, but I'm not actually sure. Okay. I, I, you know, I know what my audience is thinking out there. They say, well, give us a hint as to what, what we should try to get there. I mean, they're, they're not going to be that interested in waiting for it or having it yeah. come in. So, I yeah. mean, is there something like, you know, are there, you know, something that's your favorite, for instance, that you would like yeah. to see in a garden? So the, the biggest bang for their buck are pretty much anything in the aster family. So that would be um, the, of course, the, the asters, so the New England aster, um, but also things like Joe Pye weed, things like New York, New York ironweed, and a plant that I absolutely love that gets a bit of a bad reputation, goldenrod. Mm -hmm. And before everybody starts sneezing, goldenrod is not the one uh, predominantly responsible for the fall allergies. That is um, ragweed and more and more as it becomes more of an invasive problem, mugwort. These plants are, their pollen is wind dispersed. They have next to no visible flower. When you see a flower like a goldenrod that has these showy yellow flowers and it's absolutely covered in pollinators, that plant relies on those pollinators to spread its pollen in large part because its pollen is too heavy to be windborne. Mm -hmm. So unless you're sticking your face right into a goldenrod, that pollen can't really get into your nose. Um, mm -hmm. So the goldenrods are wonderful. And I don't think I know of any plant that has such a diversity of, um, of plants. And there are ones that are not just those big showy ones that we're used to that are seven feet tall on the sides of the roads. There are stout ones that, that grow at the beach and beautiful ones that grow on the top of um but they're pretty Mountain aggressive. Tops. It depends on the species. So our Canada goldenrod is rather aggressive, um, but some of the other ones really aren't at all. We have about 20 species of goldenrod native and to Connecticut. Do, do nurseries sell these? They do, yes. 
it's few and far between. There are a few more, more and more nurseries are um, getting on board and um, I'm working with the Connecticut Ecotype Project through um, CT NOFA and we're working to expand the um, nurseries that these seeds will be at, but it is kind of slow. One of the best ways that you can kind of get some of those plants, since the quantities are so limited, many are sold at plant sales. So um, the coastal conservation districts, the river conservation districts and stuff have plant sales. And if you sign up for their listservs, they will let you know. I know that um, Planters Choice grew a lot of plants this past season with seed from um, myself and some other collectors. And they sold out before the plant sales were over. Cool. We're speaking with Aubrey Courageon. She's an ecologist. She's a Connecticut gal right here in our own backyard. She has uh, founded a company called Ungardening Native Plants, a small-scale nursery. You can reach her at uh, ungardenit at gmail.com, and you know you can check her out. Uh, she's up there in Durham, Connecticut, so I'm sure if you Google around, you can find things. Uh, ungardening.org is another place you might be able to find her. Um, uh, Aubrey, what, what else? Wait, let's get a couple more plants that would be uh, good additions to somebody who wants to start changing their garden around and also help the pollinators. Yeah. So when people think about helping the pollinators, I think a lot of focus is on the um, herbaceous plants. So those are the things that die back to the ground at the end of the year. But many of our trees and shrubs are critically important, especially very early in the season. Um, our blooming shrubs are some of the earliest blooms and they are what the queen, um, queen bumblebees rely on. So instead of, if you have say a quarter acre lawn or a half acre lawn that you wanna do something with, instead of turning that entire area into a meadow, maybe put a half of it into a meadow and half of it into a shrubby area. So another subject that I'm interested in is changing off from uh, these ornamentals. You put a lot of different ornamentals in your garden. And, and I've been curious about edible um, plants that can come back perennial or, or even you could plant every year that give you showy flowers or, or showy <laughs> fruit that isn't a substitute for the standard ornamental, which is good for nothing except its beauty, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, do you have any comments about edible uh, um, plants that can be used in your garden? Absolutely. And I'm actually kind of going to answer your question a little sideways first. Um, <laughs> many of our invasive plants are actually quite edible. So I mentioned autumn olive briefly, but Japanese knotweed shoots are also edible in the early spring. Uh, garlic, garlic mustard leaves and roots are all edible. So that can be a great way to kind of not get as dragged down by the removal of your invasive species by um, harvesting them and eating them. But many of our natives are also deliciously edible as well. Blueberries and strawberries and elderberries. You know, I see that you said you want, you really want people to integrate their yards and schoolyards and businesses back into the environment that surrounds them. So mm. are you saying you want to meld them together with what's right around them? Let's say you, I mean, some places in Connecticut, it's very easy because you have woods right next to you or an empty area that is full of, you know, native species most likely and so you, you're trying to meld them together so that you get some benefit from both yeah. so i'm kind of help, trying to help people realize that they already are whether you're actively trying to make your yard part of the ecosystem around it or not it is because there's no boundary line between your property and the next property or your property and the air above it um so as far as all of the pollinators are concerned, you, you already are part of the ecosystem. You're just potentially not doing a very good job at it. So 
they don't need a contiguous way to get from one yard to another to another. Even a, a planter on a patio would still attract some native insects who would be able to find that. And maybe that's going to be the one little oasis that allows them to survive this accidental journey they made into the urban desert. So any little bit of space in any place really can make a huge difference. Right. So you recommend get started, just do something, right? Yes. Every, every single plant helps. That's great. So what's the main thing you want to leave people with about ungardening? I think I would encourage people to look at their yards and kind of question what they actually need to do and what they're doing just out of habit and notice who's living in their yards and just just start to observe and question what they're doing in their yards a little bit more and um, start to be critical. Sounds good. Well, Aubrey Courageen, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, once again, she's uh, got a company called Ungardening Native Plants, and you can reach her at ungardenit at gmail.com. And also, uh, you can just Google her and probably find her at ungardening.org. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindthedirtradio.com.